So tonight I would like to um, <clears throat> explore with you something Anna spoke about this morning in the sense of this whole process of um, really kind of breaking the heart open and uh, how, um, through story, how that uh, can work on some level. <clears throat> but uh, because you've been so good, I thought I would start with a little humor here to uh, <laughs> what, uh, to kind of, besides a cell phone, I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, it is, this is that machinery or technologically um, related. This is computer haiku. Uh, apparently in Japan, they have replaced the impersonal and unhelpful Microsoft error messages with haiku poetry messages. Here are 16 actual error messages from Japan. Your file was so big, it might be very useful, but now it's gone. <laughs> the website you seek cannot be located, but countless more exist. <laughs> Chaos reigns within. <laughs> Reflect, repent, and reboot. <laughs> Order shall return. <laughs> Program aborting. Close all that you have worked on. You are asking far too much. <laughs> Windows. NT crashed. I am the blue screen of death. <laughs> no one hears your screams. <laughs> Yesterday it worked. Today it is not working. Windows is like that. First snow, then silence. This thousand dollar screen dies so beautifully. <laughs> this is Robert here once. With searching comes loss and the presence of absence. Quote, my novel not found. The Tao that is seen is not the true Tao until you bring fresh toner. <laughs> a crash reduced your expensive computer to a simple stone. <laughs> Three things are certain, death, taxes, and loss of data. Guess which has occurred? You step into the stream, but the water has moved on. This page is not here. <laughs> Out of memory. We wish to hold the whole sky, but we never will. Serious error 
all, shorts, all shortcuts have disappeared. Screen, mind, both are blank. <laughs> so. so I want to tell a story tonight. Um, I'm just uh, a month back from um, a journey to uh, some so to a place that I since uh, 40 years uh, ago uh, I was living in Kathmandu, Nepal, and there was uh, there's what's called the Monkey Temple there, and they say it's a representation of Mount Meru, Mount Kailash, and I lived there for a year with that uh, knowledge there that there was some mountain. Uh, off in the sort of, you know, from the kid, the lost horizon or something that existed uh, that had some uh, kind of magic and uh, was, uh, in a sense, a, uh, uh, a destination for surrender. I can just call it that. So uh, a couple years ago, actually here, uh, I wrote this poem, so I thought I would start with it because it really... Uh, started about this time that I began to actually put these pieces together. And uh, it's called Pilgrimage of Awakening. So why would I want to climb the mountain? Maybe it was yesterday or last week or last month or last year, sometime long before now. For a minute moment, the clouds parted, revealing a rocky snow-covered peak somehow not knowing if it was real or a dream. Some impulse deep down, knowing no time to waste, fog surrounding everywhere, which way to go. Sitting down like the sages, seers, seekers, listening, listening, breathing, fidgeting, thoughts like streams of every color darting off, landing nowhere. Was it a month? two months, waiting for that inner compass, that trusted voiceless instinct like a sleepwalker, the heart knowing its way, stepping on the old path, humbly walking without seeing, zero visibility, feeling the steadiness and support of ancient ones who treaded this way before, we keep going, we keep going. So I'd like to describe uh, first um, what I've spent probably four years in Nepal. I've done seven of the major treks. I have spent four years in India, living most of the time uh, either down in the plains or uh, in the Himalayas. And uh, in probably the most uh, remote part of uh, Tibet, in western Tibet. Uh, there is uh, the highest plateau in the world. Uh, Tibet goes from about 11,000 to uh, 16,000 as plateau. And up on the highest part of the plateau uh, is a single mountain uh, known as Mount Kailash. In the old text, they called it Mount Meru. And it has been the center of uh, pilgrimages, they say, for over 10,000 years. You have this mountain, and within 30 kilometers of it, 
you have to the north, you have the Indus River, which goes down towards Pakistan. You have the, uh, the south, you have the Karnali. You have the Brahmaputra, which goes to the west, and the Lungchempa, which goes to the east. So you have this mountain with four rivers moving out from it in all directions. And it became, in, uh, in sort of Asian mythology, uh, you could say Mount Olympus or I don't know, some, something representing uh, the uh, sort of the heavens. And that over the centuries, uh, in uh, like pre-11th century, before the Muslims came into Iran and um, um, uh, through the whole uh, Middle East, there were the Zoroasters. And uh, they were kind of a mystical religion that considered uh, this Mount Kailash the center of the world. And there was also the Hindus who considered this was the home of Shiva and Parvati. Uh, it was uh, called Demchok in Tibetan, uh, the kind of the, the highest uh, place of the levels of the gods. You know. um, for the bonds, for the, for the Buddhists. Um, uh, for the Jains, uh, they believe the, that Mahavira, his predecessor, uh, which would have been pre-2500 years ago, uh, was there and was enlightened there, so 5,000 years ago. Uh, so this has been for, for uh, religions and people the kind of center of the world uh, for, from the Asian point of view. And it is the original, uh, what they also, the, the Kali Chakra, which is the uh, kind of the original mandala uh, of where all of, all of it has come out of, has come out of a physical thing itself uh, as the rivers move. So um, about the, somewhere here probably a couple of years ago, I uh, decided that uh, getting uh, older, and I think it's called the, the bucket list, you know, <laughs> uh, before you kick the bucket, uh, there's certain things. And, you know, as I get into my 60s, I realize, oh, this is getting more and more out of reach. Uh, so I decided that uh, uh, my, one of my, uh, out, my outfitter, who uh, was the first uh, woman's expedition to climb uh, Annapurna, uh, Christy Toos, has been a student for years, and uh, we have led in the footsteps of the Buddha, uh, trips to India. So we decided this is it. We're going to put a trip together and uh, see if we can't uh, go to Kailash. Well, being stubborn as I am, I said, well, the only way the Buddha walked and walked, when you do the pilgrimage, you realize how much he traveled. And I said, well, the only way that I will do this is if I can walk in, uh, as they've done for uh, thousands of years. So um, uh, we decided, okay, fine. She said, great. Uh, I didn't realize what I was asking, but that's okay. Uh, all I knew was this was a dream, and it was something that had been kind of been in my consciousness for years. And, um, and I wasn't going to get any younger. So uh, we put uh, together... Uh, um, Actually, it was originally, it was 23 people. 
that uh, we were going to fly into this, uh, the most remote part of Nepal in Western Nepal, which I knew nothing about except that, you know, maybe 60 people trek that route a year. Um, and there are literally these other ones, there are hundreds and thousands of people that trek, you know. So there's a very remote uh, situation. And so the outfitter, um, we set it up and people bought tickets and everything. And then March, you know what happened uh, in Lhasa. And there was a total lockdown. And uh, so in June, I was uh, asked, well, it, there may be some other way to do this. And being stubborn, I said, no. If we can't get in, we'll just walk. We'll, we'll go up and go through this valley called Limi Valley, and we'll just circle around and be able to see it from there. And that, but we have to walk. Uh, that's the primary requirement. But just like coming to retreat, you can't make this stuff up. You have to show up, and you have to do it. You know? And it means that somehow um, um, there's got to be a stretch here. Uh, that's what it is, you know, and some kind of uh, exertion or effort or uh, and also some kind of sacrifice that's necessary uh, for this spiritual journey. This is a piece um, uh, from uh, Roshi uh, Joan Halifax, who um, our outfitter actually took several times there and and also uh, Robert Thurman. Um, wrote a book called Circling the Sacred Mountain, which is about it. Everybody has a geography itself that can be used for change. That is why we travel to far off places. Whether we know it or not, we need to renew ourselves in territories that are fresh and wild. We need to come home through the body of alien lands. For some, there are journeys of change that are taken intentionally and mindfully. They are pilgrimages, occasions when earth heals us directly. When earth heals us directly. Pilgrimage has been for me and for many others as a form of inquiry of action, uh, of inquiry of action. So as story goes, um, in my stubbornness, I said, no, this is the only way I'd go. So it, I knowing in June that uh, it was closed, it was no way to get in. The Olympics were going to happen. Uh, it was very, very dicey. Uh, I had to, I was teaching a retreat in September, so I said, well, we can't really get it together till late and go into Tibet in October, which was nuts, but that's all right. Uh, it's... <laughs> I just said, that's what's there. And so um, uh, everyone had flown there and were all waiting for me. And uh, we were going to, and by that time in June, I said, well, it looks like we'll have to walk. We cannot, they will not allow us in. And um, Tenzin Norbu, our uh, outfitter, uh, emailed me just before we left saying, I think I'll get you in. And we flew in, and that night, no one knew. Uh, we met in Kathmandu, and uh, he came in and said, uh, you know, we, what we're going to do is the Chinese are holding uh, the visas for five days, so they're going to fly someone in, 
and send a runner up with your passports so you can cross the border. And um, we went, whoa, that's uh, okay. Uh, so um, we got it together and uh, 21 people, uh, it was actually 23, uh, two, uh, when we hit, we had to fly into uh, Nepal Gunge. Now, one thing to know about this is that until a year and a half ago, this was the stronghold of the Maoists. So this hadn't been, uh, this was a, a, you know, untouched place um, since the government is uh, co-joined now with the Maoists. And um, so we took off and started. And what I didn't realize was how difficult this was. You know, and we had, there was 40 people, you know, 20 Sherpas and uh, 21 Westerners. And um, uh, it was a wonderful walk, beautiful. Uh, on the seventh day, uh, we came onto this, uh, it's, uh, it's called uh, Naralangna Pass, which is over 16,000 feet. And to get an idea here, I know I lived in this a couple summers ago, um, in Ladakh, which is about 11,000. But where I was going was a mile higher, okay, just to get an idea, a mile higher. I had no, I didn't have an understanding of that, really. And um, one of the things that happened, I just, um, actually Friday before I came here, I had this root canal finished, okay. Uh, and um, what happened was, uh, when you have a tooth that's dying, and I'd ha I went to the dentist before I left. Uh, that night when we got to just, we were going to go over this pass uh, at 15-2 or something. And that night I suddenly woke up and, and uh, what happens is, is if a tooth is dying, uh, there's, there's also air bubbles. And those air bubbles uh, in high altitude uh, begin to expand. And as they expand, it, it begins to irritate and then cause an abscess uh, with the tooth, which is not common. And actually, on Everest, people, their teeth crack, you know, uh, and that happens if, you know, climbers and stuff. So I'm going, oh, my goodness. And so <laughs> this, is, this is serious. I don't say anything, and we walk down in, into this. We, it's fun to tell the story. I haven't actually, this is, some pieces to this are very new to me. Uh, we went down and uh, what wasn't told to us was going into Zir, which is into Tibet, as you go down this pass, and we had to leave very early in the morning, we didn't actually know why so early, uh, is it was an avalanche area, and these, so you would be walking along and these rocks would come out of nowhere and fly down and, um, you know, come crashing. Our doctor that was with us got hit with a stone. And what, we, what they didn't tell us, of course, the year before was that uh, a woman had, uh, her hip had been broken uh, by one of these rocks. So, you know, it was, I had no idea how high risky taking 21 people uh, on some, you know, my great, uh, you know, whatever we want to call it, bucket list. <laughs> but at that point, I started to, uh, you know, it, when you have pain like that, uh, what happens is the body begins to shut down and you start just, you know, everything 
it was just like almost was, I was almost going blind in some way from the pain of it, you know. And we got to Zier and I was trying to be, you know, cool. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I was the leader, you know, so <laughs> sort of have to be cool, you know, on some level. But the, the pain just got more and more intense and then uh, the doctor with us, they uh, put me on antibiotics. And it took two and a half days uh, because the veins are very small, I guess, in the, in the kind of up in the tooth area there. And it was really affecting my eyesight too in my left eye. And um, as this went on, I just this kind of shutting down of my system got more and more. And, um, but we had to keep going, you know, and I um, tried to smile, but there wasn't much smile there. There was just this contraction, you know. And applying, you know, it's, um, uh, you're gonna all die, you know. And uh, this practice uh, is this capacity to apply um, uh, this mindfulness to how a sensation and pain works. And it was really uh, quite helpful, uh, but also it was over the top. You know, I was just shut down. And so, um, and what had happened, we got behind on schedule and we were supposed to spend uh, a day acclimatizing at 15,000 feet, but we had no time for it. So we had to go on up. And um, what happened was the we got to, there's a lake called uh, Manasavara, which is the beginning of the pilgrimage, the actual physical beginning. And the next pass over from where we were, where usually in the summer, 10,000 uh, uh, Indians, Hindus come uh, to do this kora, this circumambulation of the mountain in the middle of summer. And we're talking about October. Uh, and no one has been allowed in. And what's unusual about this is that, uh, as story goes, is when we had this meeting in Kathmandu, uh, Tenzin Norbu came in and said, well, you're the story maker group. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, we're the only people allowed in uh, for, it'll be a year and a quarter. You know, it'll be next May before anybody goes in. So we were the only group that got in this year, even though there were groups behind us that wanted to go. Who knows, you know, it was good, uh, good to do it. Uh, certainly there was everything on our side. And the first place that we came over this pass and we saw this mountain, I started to cry. You know, I just began, I, the antibiotics had kicked in and it's like, <laughs> it's like this pain had gotten under my armoring. And you know, we hold our hearts so, um, so dearly, you know? And it's, we build these layers, and I realize I've been building these layers. I mean, I love teaching, and I'm, I'm, I'm a you know, warrior type teacher. I just, you know, I go and I go and I go. And I have the, uh, the energy and the capacity to do that, you know? And over 20 years, I've, I've missed one retreat, I think, where I was sick. Uh, so I really see this kind of the winds of the body as they strengthen with these practices, you know. But also this layers, you know, and these layers uh, are, um, they're like skin, you know, they just get more and more kind of calloused on some level. And I realized on some level 
when I got there, I saw this mountain. I just started, you know, it was like, um, you know, it's not just a dream. It's, it's part of the whole, um, that the mount, what the mountain represents in us, you know, and it's that peak in the sense of, yes, there's idea of gods, but also uh, there is awakening. And that that is always represented in us. You know, I remember in the in the 60s, uh, I read this book by Rene Dumal called Mount Analog that was um, uh, made me understand in a sense that uh, there are subtle levels and that these subtle levels we are working with here. You know, they, they cannot be, um, as we get quieter and we get we soften and we allow ourselves to relax and to uh, this is a deconstruction process you know I, I would love to say well you'll get to the self or the ego but actually uh, you're you're playing here you're disassembling pieces as you go along here in moments that you just simply uh, allow yourself uh, not to put anything on what's happening but actually to be informed by it you know and we're not adding anything. And we have somehow had the ability uh, to, um, I don't know if it's move around language or uh, move by it or under it, but we, um, we stop constructing more, you know, and we start just, maybe it's just here, just sitting here. But there are these layers that cover. And I began to see that, oh, these layers were somehow holding uh, this kind of structure on some level together. And I was going there because uh, what was it I was looking for is I wanted to somehow break down that structure. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what pilgrimage is about. It's about, you know, you go there to surrender something, to somewhere to get to find a sliver you know, of faith uh, that in um, our protectedness is, uh, and I think particularly for West, sometimes so far away, you know. So sometimes we need some pretty good knocks, and I have seen how this practice over the years uh, can get under there and rattle. Uh, but also, I have also seen that in these practices, uh, uh, it's very tricky because at the same time you can uh, shore up somewhat. Mm-hmm. So there's uh, two pieces there, you know. Um, so it's not a panacea in that way. And that's why uh, life itself, you have to, you know, as, as Joan Halifax said, you have to, it has to be an inquiry of action. You know, we have to move into it. This is an action here, phenomenal action. You know. And moving into that, I just began this process of just, I just cried. And then I started this process, uh, which was, I began to realize how many people I had harmed in my life. You know, uh, my parents, I was always one of these people, you know, whether it was, you know, I remember one summer I was living in Egypt and and, uh, you know, I was like this high adventure. I'd just go off, you know, in the back streets of the Kasbah and, and, um, 
you know, I was one thing after another like that. You know, it was always, there was some, well, I guess that's why I went to Kailash. Uh, <laughs> you know, one thing after another. But in this process, um, we got to uh, where the circumambulation is called a Kora, that is 52 kilometers. You go around this uh, mountain and uh, you see Tibetans that are prostrating, prostrating, full prostration. You know, I mean, there weren't many people at all because of, um, there had been a, a heavy snowstorm. And um, there was uh, three feet on the pass, and it was, it was kind of messy. And, and you go up this uh, valley, it's called the Valley of the Gods, and you're looking at this mountain. And I just couldn't stop crying, and I kept going to this thing about how, um, you know, people kept flashing through my mind of how I'd harmed people, you know? And that, um, and then I started going to this thing, well, well, where's the intention? And I don't think I ever had the intention to harm anyone. You know, that was not what was true. But what was true is that because, you know, uh, His Holiness, uh, the Dalai Lama says, you know, just living is harming others. And that we all have these different ideas of what we're doing, how we're doing it, when we separate, when we merge, when we, you know, go on our way. And um, and I began to this process of just touching that and allowing it, and somehow. And I think this is the piece: allowing it to inform you. You know, this is not a bad thing. Uh, as Rob was talking about the emotions, somehow you, you got to get under it in some way, uh, and allow it to, um, yeah, to surrender, ultimately. And it was interesting in this process, as I began to, these people kept coming in my mind, and I would go through this process. And then I started seeing that this was not just, this wasn't about John and his stuff. Uh, what this was in this mountain, whatever this mountain is, it began to transform itself into this heart that was uh, aware of the kind of the suffering of the world. You know, that everybody, this happens to everybody. This is the, this is the nature, you know. And um, the amount of um, sensitivity, vulnerability, that I began to feel uh, just towards the 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 uh, complexity of uh, the world itself, you know. And we got up. Uh, this was uh, about um, sixteen six, uh, and it was the north face of Kailash. And um, at this point, um, they uh, we went in. And I was just I was so, I was so tired. I was just I could barely move. And so I asked our, our doctor just to check, and so he, they have these little finger things they put on, and, and um, you know, usually your oxygen level is somewhere between, um, what, 190, somewhere in there. And I was right around 68, and my heart was running at 108, you know, trying to, um, and I had the worst, terrible headache. And uh, basically I had altitude uh, sickness, you know. 
And um, so I did take, that night I took Dymox, but usually it takes, uh, it can take uh, 24 hours before it actually starts working. And of course I'm with this group of people and, you know, um, and also altitude is, is hard to sleep. Um, that's the other kind of side effect of that. So, and I brought my son along and um, that night I lay there and my head was kind of pounding and and, um, you know, I would, every once in a while, I would try to, uh, one of the things was just breathe harder so you can get more oxygen into your body. So I would kind of pump a little for a little while and then <laughs> tired, then I would kind of uh, keel over. And I started this process of just then remembering that uh, I'd had two friends in their early 70s who had uh, gone to Tibet, and one of them uh, wrote a book on Tibetan medicine and uh, another one, a very good friend that I'd worked with in Berkeley. And um, uh, they had both uh, gone to Tibet for a period of time and come back and gotten uh, uh, brain tumors and died. You know, very young. This is, uh, you know, uh, one was not even 30. And uh, the other, uh, I don't know if either one of them were. You know, in those years, we didn't really know much about this. But when the brain, when there's that little oxygen for the brain, uh, you know, it begins to die. You know. And uh, that is really uh, what, uh, what was happening, you know, was uh, basically uh, my body was, um, I mean, it was okay, but, the, but that headache, that was basically this experience of dying. And by morning, I don't know if the Dymox started working or whatever, because I was taking actually a therapeutic dose by then. Um, uh, I felt better. And uh, this message started going through me about um, that, you know, this process, what it's about, you know. Uh, we come and this is a mind training, and that mind training uh, uh, essentially uh, uh, creates a mind uh, that, uh, first of all, can stay, you know. And so if it stays, it means it can listen, you know. And uh, if it truly can listen, you know, then uh, that that uh, we have created, we've been talking a lot about the self and ego, that uh, we have built up in some way. Uh, I mean, this practice is basically a threat to you. <laughs> you know, this is a threat to you. Uh, this is a threat to who you think you are. Ultimately, it, it looks really nice here. We have nice place, all that stuff, but it's not what it's about. You know? uh, ultimately, this is here to uh, threaten that on some level, uh, that uh, smallness that's there. You know, it's really based on this uh, fear, this uh, sense of possession, this, uh, you know, kind of this flipped coin that one side of it is, is uh, the victim and the other side is the victor. You know, so you sit here and play these stories a lot of times of, oh, how great you are or what a schmuck you are. You know, I mean, it's like this incredible... Uh, 
you know, uh, kind of an emotional bandwagon that we work with here to free ourselves in some way. Um, and when the morning came, I actually had all these things that had to go up on the Dromala Pass, which is 18,600. And so I sent, uh, and the, the snow was three feet high and it was snowing. And, and uh, so of 21 people, six of them uh, went on and my son was one of them. And I handed all my, uh, I had people's hair. I had uh, one, of, um, one of the managers, her son's ashes, uh, all this stuff uh, to leave. Uh, up on top, and so it was great because my son could do it. I couldn't, you know. And um, that day, uh, that the piece behind all this was um, about death, about uh, this vulnerability that um, that we really. We do so much to protect, to put these layers on, you know. But in truth, you know, um, the piece that's missed is uh, the capacity uh, to see, in a way, the preciousness. You know, I was asked uh, today. Uh, Deb said, "Oh, you, are you going to talk about gratitude?" You know, and so it, I am talking about gratitude. Because at that moment, I realized how much I wanted to live, you know? And I felt this peace around, I had worked so hard, and I'd gotten so far, you know, and uh, that, uh, that whatever time, whatever breath, you know, I have left, that uh, I wanted to touch life and be touched by it, you know? Uh, it was not something to... Um, to make a deal with, you know. Uh, it was actually something that uh, was so phenomenally precious, you know, uh, each breath. And I really learned a lot, finally, about the breathing. <laughs> you know, some way I didn't, I couldn't get somehow, you know. And, um, and uh, the heart, you know, that we uh, sometimes uh, we have to get under the armory. And I don't know how that happens. I think sometimes the people that you fall in love or, um, you know, uh, it can be uh, uh, people that are close to you, you know, very close family that may die or is in the process of dying that, um, you know, that somehow forces you uh, to get underneath that and um, uh, take down those, you know, these defenses that are shored up uh, because of the, you know, what happened at, you know, six months in creating this um, um, uh, uh, this aspect of this dualism of comparison, you know, comparing myself to all sorts of things. And this is the process uh, where we begin to slowly, we begin to see in this deconstruction uh, the hollowness uh, of your stories. You know, they don't hold up. You know, there's a wonderful image in the suttas about, uh, that I use about 
uh, I was thinking the crows that fly, and that there's a ship out at sea, and uh, there is a crow on that ship, and there is no land about. And this whole thinking process is this crow that flies out looking for a place to land, but there's no place to land, so it always has to come back to the ship. And we begin to see that there's really no place else to go with this. Ultimately, you know, maybe it's just kind of, Trumpa talked about it as, as wearing like a pair of shoes, like wearing them down till, you know, there's just no soul left. You know, there's just that contact. I got to teach that day um, something I've always wished at 16,600 feet. Uh, we went into, uh, this was the cave of, um, for me, this is so many of my heroes, you know, Shabkar and, and uh, I was thinking Milarepa and um, Saraha and uh, many of the Dalai Lamas over the centuries, Padmasambhava, uh, they all went to this mountain. And uh, Milarepa, there's a cave there on the north face where uh, he lived. And it is now a Karjupa temple. And so we went in and, and uh, sort of did our prostrations to this little cave where he lived. And there was a monastery there, um, very few monks. And, and uh, so we went in and they had there where they do all their chanting and stuff. And so uh, I sort of knew the magic formula uh, to open uh, this uh, Lama that was there, the caretaker. And, um, you know, it was uh, my first teacher, and it was just simply Karmapa Cheno, which is long live the Karmapa. And he was so touched. He went and got, you know, like conch shells out and he started blowing them, was <laughs> hopping around. He was absolutely freezing, you know. <laughs> he was hopping around, and next thing we knew, we were all like, it looked like, you know, this North Face. Uh, uh, all these bundles, you could barely see these people, you know, with these <laughs> slits for eyes. And, and, um, and so I was able to sit and I was able to teach uh, at, in Milarepa's cave at 16,600 feet on Kailash. And what I began to realize was uh, it was all, so I taught on what is known as the, um, the co-emergence. And there's first this, you know, we get so caught up in, in the scene, you know. Uh, we look and we expect, you know, if you're looking at me here or, if you, or wherever, that uh, we project on the object, you know, and that the mind always is projecting on the objects. And the practice is to come back and to recognize that, you know, yes, it's true that the object is there, but where do you experience it? Do you experience me out here? You do not, actually. You experience me actually upside down on your eye, you know? And so from the practice point of view, this is really is a kind of this practice of recognizing the sense experience of things, but not being fooled by the appearances uh, because they co-emerge with everything. So it is this capacity to recognize uh, the substancelessness of the appearances, the sounds, the objects, they uh, arise out of nowhere and they return to nowhere. And it's happening, uh, what Anna was talking about last night, moment to moment, uh, this is happening. And our mind is built, is actually built 
so that it can take and solidify what it's seeing and hearing and thinking uh, and concretize it, make it, uh, in a sense, uh, what we think is real. Uh, but if we look really closely, is that true? Is it just the co-emergence of appearances? You know, uh, it's a question. You know, the same way that uh, this whole uh, that crow uh, in the thinking that uh, uh, the question is: it arises from where that thought? It abides or dwells where? And it goes where? Is it something? Or is it something that co-emerges? It's only in relationship to everything else. No. Therefore, is it real? Is it something? No. And then there's the mind itself. No. Uh, that, the knowing that's here, that uh, recognizes uh, uh, what is happening here. No. Uh, this, does it change? I'm just asking a question. No. Or is it, what is it that's looking out of your eyes? No. What is it that's knowing? And it can hold any of this. Is it possible? And so the process here ultimately is this, this inquiry uh, into your experience. How is it happening? And um, you know, uh, last night, uh, this I like. Uh, retranslating some words sometimes in, in, the, in this practice of vipassana. Uh, you know, it's, it, usually it's translated as seeing clearly or special seeing. Um, but I like uh, maybe some simpler words like intelligence, you know, basic intelligence. That is uh, something that when it's quiet enough and there's a steadiness of mind, and there's a recognizing that what is appearing, uh, what is the thinking, uh, what is it that's aware? You know, uh, if you can sit in that, then um, who are you, really? You know, and can you sit there underneath the language? Uh, the mind, um, when it, uh, in essence, kind of sees its nature, so that we study its nature. You know, you have to you have to really know it. But then this quality of investigation has to be there, uh, because otherwise, um, you know, the mindfulness, in some ways, uh, and isn't really enough. There has to be this clear comprehension of what's going on. So there has to be that intelligence. And that intelligence, you know, that uh, investigative quality, that that comes from deep down, you know, from the listening. 
Uh, also another word, uh, uh, uncomplicated. No, insight, practice. The uncomplicated. No, not two. No, just things arise. They're known. No. Uh, uh, we can free them. And that's uh, the power of the mindfulness. It has the capacity to free it. And it's not that, you know, it ends there because it's something that has to, you have to continue contemplating and this investigation because you're always recreating yourself over again. That's the nature of your mind. So it is this quality of investigation that begins to um, uh, break down the solidity uh, of what's experienced. So, um, in the practice itself, uh, just to uh, kind of hold this in some way, is that uh, our primary interest here is first in the discomfort, and that we're willing to turn towards a discomfort and see what the simply in this first stages of this four noble truths of the of what the Buddha saw as this capacity to first of all to understand the stress and the uh, uh, discomfort that is inherent. There's that that's of the body, and there's that that we make up. And the Buddha said, we can't be free of what's in, of the body, but we can be free of what we make up. You know, uh, that's the process here. Unfortunately, the body can't, uh, that's, uh, you know, that's already predetermined in some ways. There's also what Anna was talking about last night is suddenly this intelligence uh, begins this process of investigating. Uh, first, the most uh, important of this uh, I see as this practice actually has to do with that, the anicca, the impermanence. We start no longer, you all know this intellectually, but it's actually getting it on a visceral level, on a, on a, a kind of a, a body base. Uh, because uh, when we put our attention in our bodies, uh, different than the mind that makes things up and, and creates these uh, identities and beliefs and stories and memories and all that, what is it that's so phenomenal about the body is that it's always here. You know, uh, it's always in present time. Um, uh, we can begin to uh, own uh, that uh, physical uh, experience through the body, which simply says there's nothing that you can hold on to. The, the consciousness arises or the awareness arises and uh, it touches phenomena and uh, whether it's seeing or hearing or smelling or tasting or body sensation, what happens? You know, just bounces, it just <clears throat> does something else. Mm -hmm. All on its own. You didn't choose. You tried the breath. You know, I'm going to stay on the breath, right? How well has it really worked? You know? <laughs> but the intelligence, this is the thing. The intelligence is happening because it's seeing the, this anicca, this impermanence that's going on. It also sees how it contracts 
and it understands the nature of stress because then uh, not just from the body but from the mind it hurts you know and then you know this question uh, this piece about you know uh, is there anything that's solid that you can call yourself uh, you've been looking found something Good luck. (laughs) But as you begin that process of uh, looking and seeing that uh, uh, these are deep truths that are go way deep down in the river, deep down in the lake, way down in the in the sense the universal experience. You and I, we have the same minds. We actually the same body. We have the same function. We were never really separate. That was, that was the problem. And so we began then to question. And so there's a second level to this, which, you know, in the evenings you've been chanting this prajna paramita. You know. And what does it say? It says, well, uh, uh, there's no, uh, this is a substanceless experience. There is, it's, it's empty of, of any inherent, not only self, but the appearance is also empty. You know, and yet, in this moment, we're all here, arising together, you know, in a kind of a karmic knot that uh, is a phenomena, a phenomena that is modulating all of your past. Isn't that cool? You know, it also means that if you can hang in there, that, uh, well, now this gets into some belief systems, but I hold to this, that uh, you could be sitting on the edge. Karma is just, you know, it's, uh, or they call vipaka, past things that we've done, positive and negative. They can come up at any moment, any moment, you know. What we're doing here is we're actually modulating not just mine, yours, everyone's in this room, uh, is changing. They're changing who not only they think they are, but they're actually changing the result, the vipaka, of who they are. You know, to me, that's why I do this, because uh, that actually says that uh, this is a uh, selfless process uh, that um, is freeing us all. Freeing us all, there's, it can't be otherwise. You know, pretty cool. You know, now that's, you know, you know, so don't get hung up in your stories. You know, <laughs> it's not personal that way. You know, and at the same time, you know, you can't deny it. That's what I'm trying to say is it's, it's empty of any substance. And at the same time, uh, you know, you are the psychology and, uh, and this neurotic, uh, which you all are, by the way, uh, uh, playing out this destiny, you know, and what we're trying to do is modulate it, uh, uh, to this, to this kailash, to this, you know, awakening, to this, uh, process of um, 
kind of uh, deconstructing uh, our smallness. You know, the bigness is already there, by the way. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to do anything about that. You know, it's really the absolute. It's not a problem. Never has been a problem. Now, the third aspect of this um, uh, has to do, um, and I, it's, it's called the Tathagata Garbha. But it's it, the Tathagata, the Buddha, uh, they, whenever you read uh, that name Tatha, it means suchness. So he is the suchness, right? He has arrived at the suchness. What is that suchness? What is the nature of that suchness? It is actually who you are. Uh, this third level of it is the fact that uh, that that um, oh, when uh, you begin to, they say, perfect the view of uh, who and how you are, that you begin to see that uh, that that awareness itself, there's a luminosity there, a brightness, a radiance. Uh, that is uh, not caught. No. Uh, it has uh, the nature, uh, the nature uh, of wakefulness. That's you. You know, you just got to peel these damn layers off. You know, but that's always been there. It's just like saying the, you know, cloudy day. Is the sun not there? And so this is saying the sun is there. It's always been there. You know. And um, you know, I've kind of retranslated the word because they, a lot of times they use uh, words like Buddha nature or essence or Buddha essence or whatever. But I like the language of this basic goodness. You know, that ultimately when the mind uh, no longer grasps, you know. It's the nature of craving has been uh, thinned out, you know, or eliminated through Buddha or Arhat. You know, if that's thinned out, you know, then uh, the awareness of the non-separateness. There's first of all, there's no fear. You know, there is just, you know, in the sense of the heart informing the heart. There's no, it's not a big deal. You, know, uh, you don't have to take a thousand vows. You know, uh, all you have to do is, uh, is let that, um, that uh, it is a clarity, uh, operate. You know, and it's not, there isn't two, it's, it's just this. It's a suchness. You know, this, really this non-separateness that operates. So I can love you, you know, without fault. I can love myself without fault. Same, same. You know. uh, not getting lost in here and not getting lost out there. You know, it's okay. You know. But ultimately, that's what it comes down to when that is no longer separate. You know. uh, what's left? 
I spent uh, two years in retreat before I was 30 years old. You know, and um, in the years that I, I practiced, I was uh, had a very strict uh, teacher, and um, and I I'm very um, lazy, so I needed that. And you know, I came out, and there was only three things I understood. You know, one is I wanted to be loved. I had the capacity to love, and I wanted to help. That's all it was. There wasn't some idea of some, you know, some cosmology of being. It was actually just uh, the um, uncomplicated, you know, and that this basic intelligence um, when you surrender to that silence, to that that quietness of being, you know, no problem. You never were a problem. Not that. So I'll just end here with this poem again. I did make it back from Kailash, by the way. <laughs> I did. Uh, I came back. I had one day. I've had I've, three months. I think I was home three nights, and uh, two rounds of antibiotics. And finally, uh, my dentist only works on Wednesday, Thursday, Fridays, so I couldn't get to him. Uh, I kept flying in and was there Monday, and then I flew out the next day. So finally got it before I got here. So that's good. Pilgrimage of awakening. So why would I want to climb this mountain? Maybe it was yesterday, last week, last month, last year, sometime long ago, long before now. For a minute minute, the clouds parted, revealing some rocky, snow-covered peak, somehow not knowing if it was real or a dream. Some impulse deep down knowing no time to waste. Fog surrounding everywhere. Which way to go? Sitting down like the sages, the seers, the seekers, listening, listening, breathing, fidgeting. Thoughts like streams of every color, darting off, landing nowhere. Was it a month, two months, waiting for that inner compass, that trusted voiceless instinct, like a sleepwalker? The heart knows its way. Stepping onto the old path, humbly walking without seeing, zero visibility. Feeling the steadiness and the support of the ancient ones who treaded this way before. We keep going, we keep going. So let's just sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.